Hey everyone, welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, your host and creator of this podcast. In continuation of season six, Unfinished Business, I invited Eric Nguyen to my show. And Eric Nguyen is a queer Vietnamese American author based in DC. And I knew him for the past year through his work as an editor-in-chief of Diacritics, uh, which is funded by Viet Thanh Nguyen. Uh, Eric recently released his debut fiction novel, Things We Lost to the Water, which is a story about a Vietnamese single mother raising her two teenage sons in Louisiana during the late 80s and early 90s. His book was named by former President Obama as his top 2021 summer reading list. Eric and I talk about the genesis in creating his novel and his own vision in writing stories about the Vietnamese diaspora. Please check out this episode and get your copy of his book that's in stores right now. This episode is sponsored by Red Scarf Revolution. Red Scarf Revolution is a merchandise line that honors and celebrates the Cambodian diaspora identity and experience. Feel free to check out their merchandise line and get yourself a t-shirt, hat, or other gifts. Be sure to visit www.redscarfrevolution.com or on their Instagram at red underscore scarf underscore revolution to learn more about their work. Hi, everyone. So welcome to the Bumby Chronicles podcast. And so today I am joined with Eric Nguyen. So I'll give you a little bit of a background of who he is. So Eric Nguyen earned an MFA in creative writing from McNeese State University in Louisiana. He has been awarded fellowships from Lambda Literary, Voices of Our Nation Arts, and the Ten House Writers Workshop. He is the editor-in-chief of Diacritics. He currently lives in Washington, D.C., and he released his debut novel, Things We Lost to the Water, and it was released this past spring. So uh, recently, your book has received rave reviews and accolades, and congratulations on the release of it. I have my own copy, and I really enjoyed uh, I really enjoyed your work, and, and even, even more so, uh, President Obama named your book into his summer reading list uh, this past summer. So that's got to be pretty amazing. And um, I've actually known you probably since this past year through Diacritics, uh, which was funded by Pulitzer Prize winning author Viet Thanh Nguyen. And I know that we've you know been connecting on and off. And I'm a big fan of what Diacritics have done. I really appreciate the work that you've been doing uh, through this uh, platform because uh, it's a platform that gives voices to Southeast Asian creatives and folks of the diaspora um, to share their stories, to share their work. And I've met so many amazing people through that medium, and including yourself. So I want to say, well, how have you been dealing with all the attention that you have been receiving for your uh, book? And how does it feel to have President Obama actually acknowledge you as one of acknowledge your book as one of his favorites well it's been like really wild really like like um when you write a book you're really by yourself the whole time so you don't really expect anyone to read it so like once it was published like i didn't really believe it until like it was on the shelf and i went to the bookstore and looked at it and then like suddenly like all these great reviews came in including one in the new york times which i definitely did not anticipate at all 
um, but it was a rave review from Brian Washington, and I felt like that was like like the the, the extra sprinkles on top, if you will, of like just getting the book knowledge because like like I said, like you just want to get the story out, and then the story's out in the world, and you feel like your job is done. But then people talk about it, including like President Obama, and it's all very surreal in a way because mm -hmm. again, you don't expect any of this. Like as me, like as a writer, I, I really just wanted like the book out there, like as a physical thing. Uh, part of me didn't really feel like anyone would read it, um, but I guess my publisher, like, really believed in the story, and that's how it came to be published. Yeah, no, I think that's amazing, and I have been watching your Instagram and Facebook stories, and you're sharing like every day of people, uh, tagging you, like purchasing your book reading your book whether it's from amsterdam to vietnam to all over the globe i i gotta say that must be just hard to just imagine just to wake up and be like wow i can't believe it's being touched by so many hands in so many different places and and i know for any aspiring writer the goal is just to get it out there and see what happens and lo and behold it's in the hands of so many people's hands so many people right now and uh and what i also really like to share is that we are seeing so many vietnamese american writers in the past several years really getting their stories heard and being visible on on so many mainstream platforms from you know Viet Tan Nguyen to ocean vong to um to yourself to tan ha lai it's got to be reassuring to like you know that your work is now part of these these great emerging Viet American writers, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, especially like when I was growing up, there was like no Vietnamese American writer, at least like ones that were published uh, in like the bigger presses. So like, I feel like within the last maybe five years or so, or maybe six, seven years, like there's really been I feel like an explosion of Vietnamese American voices, which I'm like I'm so grateful of. Like I feel like this was what like teenage me wanted is to see all these stories from other Vietnamese Americans being written, being part of like, the conversation of literature really. Um, and I feel like it feels really special to me, like having been like a literary critic of like Vietnamese American fiction, Vietnamese American literature to like have my book out there and be part of that um, conversation within Vietnamese American literature within American literature and it's it, like I said before it's like really surreal because like these were all people like I looked up to and now all of a sudden like I'm as a published writer I'm among them yeah and I, I gotta say that it's also surreal that you're in contact you know and connecting with them but also it tells you what we need as a community is to get our stories out uh uh, you know, I don't know if you're a millennial like myself. I'm a late millennial, and I, I gotta say, as you just touched upon, as you touched on earlier, it was hard to grow up and not see ourselves in our stories except through tragedy. And when tragedy is being written, it's written through the white lens. And to me, I always found it to be incredibly hurtful, um, reductive, uh, and just really not giving the full scope of what our community 
is about what we encompass and what you do share is not about the success stories of Vietnamese Americans it's about the the different layers the different nuances and things we lost to the water in a way speaks to that um, because there's because when we think of Asian Americans they don't just exist in coastal areas like or the east and west coastal areas uh, we don't hear enough of the stories of the south and um, when I was reading to uh, when I was reading to uh, things we lost to the water, I I have family members that live in the Gulf Shores of Alabama, and I have another good friend of mine who happened to be born in the same town that my grandparents lived in, uh, which is in uh, the Bayou La Battery in Alabama, and we don't hear the stories of what the the Vietnamese, the Southeast Asian refugees have gone through in these communities when they had to deal with the KKK, when they had to deal with the level of white violence that was happening uh, during their arrival. And, and also why do the Southeast Asian communities live there? And part of it's also because of the fishing industry, the climate, which was a familiarity with uh, Southeast Asians. So I was curious about the genesis of writing this novel and what led you to write a story about about the southern experiences of of uh, this vietnamese american family uh led by a single mother who was raising her two boys well i think the genesis of this book really started with just a want to write um a story like based on my parents own experience um growing up they didn't really talk about their refugee experience or something that kind of hid away um from us kids so I was always curious. So I felt like writing a fictionalized story um, would help me get closer to their history. Um, so I really tried to write the story, like at first, based on like where I grew up in the Washington DC area. But I felt like I wasn't getting enough traction there. Maybe it was probably too close to home that I couldn't write it. So. I moved to Lake Charles, Louisiana, which is in Southwest Louisiana near the Texas border. Um, and I think that gave me the freedom to start writing seriously this story that I wanted to tell. But when I was in Louisiana, I took many trips to New Orleans and it was there that I found out about this um, thriving really Vietnamese American community there. Um, and I, I learned so much about like their particular um, lives there um it felt like a lot of it felt like familiar to me like just the refugee story of trying to assimilate into american culture but also something very different that i hadn't seen before um they had like, a really strong community which was not what i grew up around um a lot of vietnamese people um in just one area kind of grew up there stayed there um so i kind of took those experiences and through that lens, I started writing about um, this Vietnamese American family in the South in New Orleans. And I, I feel what, what, what I hope is to highlight stories of Vietnamese Americans, um, particularly in the South. I feel like our stories in the South, um, the American South has not really been highlighted before. Like you said, like when there are stories they're usually on the coast, the East Coast or the West Coast. Um, but Vietnamese Americans do exist in the South. Um, 
Asian Americans in general do exist in the South, and that geography gives them more nonce, like different nonce, different layers that you don't see in other places, um, especially given the history of race there. Like you said, the KKK um, is active a lot in the South, and like Vietnamese American history does intersect into that history of race and anti-blackness um, of white supremacy in America. Um, like there's a good film called, I think called Seadrift, and that was about a Vietnamese American community in Texas um, who got into a, a conflict with the community there when the KKK got involved. So I think the South is full of Asian American stories, Vietnamese American stories, and I hope like my contribution is just like a drop in the bucket of more stories to come. Mm. I want to also ask you, like, what did you know about the communities uh, in your own research in the Gulf Shores and Louisiana in particular? Because I will say that um, and many times I would always go down south, uh, particularly to like Alabama, like Gulf Shores of Alabama to Biloxi to uh, New Orleans. Um, gang people forget that uh, Southeast Asian gangs were also very prominent. And I think what you share in this book is quite, uh, uh, quite important to document because uh, the refugee resettlement era placed a lot of these communities in very dire economic circumstances. And there was no healing for our refugee parents and grandparents who arrived like two or three days later, they're working in a factory, working on a farm. Uh, the kids, you know, they were having to just try to survive and survival for our own communities, especially if you're young, was particularly difficult when you don't have the guidance from your parents when they are trying to survive, when they're trying to actually rely on you to give them the information, even as five, seven year olds, you know, translation. And, and so there's so much that, that the experiences of what Southeast Asian, what the Southeast Asian refugee community has gone through. But I wanted to know, like, what did you actually learn about uh, your own research and what you found out in being in these communities? What did you see that was different from what you've experienced uh, in your own upbringing? I think what I, I really got, got from my research experience in the New Orleans Vietnamese community is really how tied they are to, to each other, that there's really a sense of community that I haven't really seen, especially where I grew up. I feel like where I grew up, like there were only a couple of Vietnamese family, like in the neighborhood, maybe one or two. And there was a larger Vietnamese community, but like my family wasn't really part of it. I mean, like- What community? There wasn't, yeah, what community did you grow up in? It's in the Silver Spring area of Maryland, and that kind of connects to I guess the Northern Virginia community where um, we have like the Eden Center there, which is a, a really a thriving Vietnamese shopping center with a community around it. But I think since we lived out in Maryland, which is a state away, um, there wasn't, it, it was far away really. It was like, I felt like for me, like we would take trips to the Eden Shopping Center in Virginia and it, was, it felt like it took hours. Even though like as adult now, I, I knew it probably took like maybe 45 minutes or so. Mm. Um, but like there, there was no Vietnamese cohesion where I grew up. I mean, like 
there there were like pockets of Vietnamese Americans and like a smaller sense of community. Like I, I did grow up with Vietnamese American gangs in my neighborhood um, or like around my neighborhood. And I think that was what really inspired me to put that into my book. It's just like something that I haven't really seen before, like this Vietnamese American gangs and what they're like the cars are dealt with there. They're in this lower economic class. They are in a place where they don't fit in, but they, they have to try to survive somehow. And I, I felt it was really important to put that experience and that Vietnamese gang experience because it's really a, a story you don't really hear much about. Um, I mean, because when we think of Asian Americans, there's always the minority model myth. And I feel like Asian American gangs, Vietnamese American gangs really like debunks that myth myth um, that we are not like the, these model citizens. Um, in fact, some of us are really struggling. Some of us are trying to find a way to survive really. And sometimes that amounts to crime and violence. So I think that was really important for me to bring in. Um, my research though, I didn't really learn of many gang activities in New Orleans, at least nothing that people would tell me, um, which I feel it's, it's understandable. People don't want to drag that kind of stuff into their own stories, especially to an outsider like me, who's like trying to do research about this community that's not mine. Um, but yeah, I think circling back to the original questions that I felt like there was a big sense of community there. There was a sense that while some people move away, like the younger people, a lot of people chose like choose to stay if they could. Um, compared to where I live, like a lot of people just move wherever they need to be. There's mm -hmm. no, there's nothing rooting them down to staying in Maryland, for example. So I think having the roots to stay, I think that's the main thing that I saw there in New Orleans. And I felt like, at least for my characters, that's what they were looking for for a very long time. It's just a place to settle down, a place to stay, a place to put down their roots and find a home. Oh, I think it's it's also an interesting point that you you know bring up, and I also want to add on, uh, like with the, with the generation of Vietnamese Americans who, uh, who have stayed here for the past forty years they don't necessarily stay in that same neighborhood. They move into the suburbs. They move into places where there's opportunities to thrive. And I also want to say, like, in the South in particular, this is, these are, um, these are economic deserts, if anything, if this is the best way of me describing it. Um, and especially after Hurricane Katrina, which you do, like, centered part of that focus in that book um, and how these communities were destroyed. And then a few years later with the oil spill, um, and a lot of these communities, especially like where my, um, where my uncle now lives, because both of my grandparents have passed they're they've, they're in danger. It's an endangered community. Most of these folks have left and are moving into different cities. They're moving into Texas, like Houston, Dallas, where there's more of a community there. There's more of the suburb life that a lot of Asian folks dream of. Uh, consolidate uh, of dreaming of having their future um, as part of their future so when you talk about uh, your character when you were writing your characters this is based on a single mother raising her two boys and 
and in a way, it's a coming of age for both of these boys. Uh, Tuan, the character, gets involved in being a, in a gang. And then for Ben, he struggles with his own sexuality and just coming to terms of what that means for him. So both of these brothers have this struggle for belonging in the sense of what is family to me? You know, what does feeling like you belong, you being cared for? And for the mother, you know, she goes through this, go through these periods of trying to trying to think of how to tell her own kids that their father is not in their lives and knowing that in the back of her head that it's not necessarily true so there's all these family the, the family secrets especially in during time of, of trauma tends to be this recurring theme throughout this book would you agree yeah i think this idea of like trauma but then also not talking about it is I feel like that's kind of ironic that it's a theme, like something that shows up in the book because like that's basically how I, I grew up, like the trauma was never really addressed. And like the mother in the book, like she doesn't address it either. She kind of moves away from it. In this case, she kind of lies about it. Um, and I think like what the book shows is that like hide it as much as you can. Like there's really no way to escape it. There's always, like this chance and this that it will like come out again this past this trauma and it's not like something you hide away it's just something that you carry with you in a way i feel like it's kind of like a scar you can like put clothes over the scar you can bandage it but it might be there and might not heal it might like fade a little bit but it's going to leave a mark on your body and there's really no way to hide it when you, you strip down everything. Mm. It's uh, interesting how you point this out about family secrets. And this is the unspoken. <laughs> it feels um, it feels like this is a normal existence in our own communities that we don't talk about because it is these family secrets are secrets that we do not uh, share uh, or actually take the time to uncover like I was in Boston recently visiting my mom's side of the family I was visiting my cousins who are close in age with me and you know we were talking about our families because I feel like I know the most out of my cousins and even my brothers and that to me felt very uncomfortable because I felt I only knew not even half the stories I only knew them to just from my mom maybe from my other uncle but it tells you that like when i started sharing these stories they're like oh my gosh i can't believe this happened y you know and and i think it's very it's 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 i don't know if i have the right way to describe this because when you are walking around with question marks you're kind of left wondering who you really are and what does your existence mean? Um, how does the life, how um, does the life that you live was informed by the, by the environment that you grew up in? And, and I think that's important to find out, to excavate through this so you have a better understanding to 
as I always say, deepen that compassion, to deepen the understanding and to have an understanding of what our parents went through because I know that we all have our own conflicts. We have our own struggles with our own parents, with our own uncles and aunts and grandparents. And part of it's because that they're withholding something that's very traumatic that they do not know how to uh, unlock. And, and oftentimes part of our healing is kind of tied to learning these uncomfortable truths and your book does kind of dive into that um that that discovery of you know why ben feels more compelled to learn about what's going on and i i wonder about his own terms of homosexuality i think that especially for the backdrop of the early 90s um i think this is a very important time because this is like right when the time of aids was happening homophobia was running very rampant. Um, I wonder, like when you were creating his side of the story or his own experiences, what do you want the queer stories to look like from the Vietnamese, the queer Asian, Southeast Asian perspective? Um, because we're so used to hearing so much about the white gay male narratives especially during the 90s, and that's what we were fed into. But what did you want to capture of what does queerness look like in our own community, especially uh, as you are also a queer Vietnamese American yourself? I think the kind of queer story I want to tell was um, perhaps not like the regular, I mean, average, like coming of age story of like coming out to your, your parents and then there's that little like moment when there's like tension between the parent and the and the child between that sexuality and that's like that's like the main thing that is the tension between them and then eventually they get over that or maybe they don't um but that coming out is always i feel like the centerpiece of a lot of queer white cis stories that i feel like that's not really at least part of the southeast asian vietnamese american um queer story because i feel like there's so much more baggage in a parent-child relationship um, when, like, one one of the parents is like a refugee, and the kid was like born in America, and there's that cultural disconnect. Like you said, like, there's the parent withholding so much trauma, so much information, so like, there's already a gap there between the parent and the child, and then adding this queerness that is is new to the heterosexual parent. I mean, like queerness in America itself is probably much different than what queerness would look like in Vietnam, let alone pre-1975 Vietnam, when a lot of um, refugees left, um, a lot of Vietnamese people left to become refugees in other countries. So I think like that simple coming out story, it's kind of almost impossible in the story of a refugee family because like I said, there's too much layers to unwrap. Um, and I think that's why I kind of avoid it. Like the coming out moment between Ben and his mother, he never really talks about it with his mother. It's mm -hmm. always like something kind of hides in a way. Mm -hmm. um, and then also something that I don't think she ever actually learns that at least she doesn't learn it directly from him. Because I feel like in order for him to like come out to her, that other tension, 
of history of that trauma needed to be resolved first. Without mm. that resolution, I feel a relationship between those two characters is really not impossible, but really difficult. Um, right. You know, I got to say something to add to that, because I think this is why I felt like I connected with Ben. I mean, not Ben. Uh, oh, uh, Ben uh, so well to this story, because um, as a queer Southeast Asian man myself, like the coming out experience to my own mom was always awkward. It was very subtle. I never really like had serious discussions because, as you mentioned, part of it's because there's actually a, a struggle. There's a trauma that is already ex that has already existed that needed to be resolved before we can even get to this, getting to this uh, issue that my mom probably has and you know even though she has been accepting of it we don't talk about it and also part of it is because I don't involve my mom uh, in a lot of the things that I do even though I do care about her very deeply because there's certain I guess there's certain traumas that protect me that that kind of shield me from from discussing things that I find to be triggering, right? And I think in Ben's situation, there's, there's a sense of trying for, of him trying to preserve himself, trying to protect his boundaries and his relationship and the fear of it being uh, destroyed um, in a way. So uh, I also want to say, uh, like, I've noticed in your book uh, that there is also like, you know, there's like broken Vietnamese sentences. There's um, there's uh, sentences that's not translated. Now, I was thinking about this for a moment because I remember Viet Thanh Nguyen uh, a long time ago. He wrote on his Twitter to never feel the need to translate. Let people look it up for themselves. Do you f actually get that? Did you get that inspiration from him in a sense too? Because I know that you've worked closely with him for diacritics. But I, I wonder if that was. Um, an influence in some ways uh, when you decided to not give the translation, but just to, uh, but to at least uh, throw these dialogues out there and let people uh, discover it on their own end. I think somewhat he influenced me, but I think just a lot of like other Asian American writers or like writers writing in like bilingual texts um, and code switching their texts like really influenced me during that decision. Um, like another writer who really influenced me was M. Evelina Galang. She's a Filipina American writer um, who's based in Miami. Um, and she taught me, she taught the workshop at Vana when I was there. And she basically was a proponent of not translating anything, just let that language flow. And I felt like that, doing that made a lot of sense to me as someone who kind of grew up in a bilingual household um, I mean, like I grew up, my parents would speak Vietnamese to me. I could understand them, but I would speak English back to them and they could mm -hmm. understand me. And it's that kind of bilingual exchange that I kind of want to put in there. And also just like the way, I guess sometimes my mind thinks, I just feels more natural to kind of switch into Vietnamese for like a certain word um, than switch back to English. I just feel like that's just the way my mind works and just so natural to put it in there. I, I didn't really second guess it. I just put it in 
no one really complained about it. So I, I felt like I was lucky in that way that I just was able to push on. But like I've heard like other writers who had to really push back against like people trying to erase their language in their mm. works, um, mm. especially from like white people who like complain like they can't understand it. Like I, I, I've, I've seen, I even like seen like Goodreads reviews mm. of like my book and people are like, white people usually are very annoyed that I, I, A, I don't like translate my Vietnamese and B, like. Same people, have... same people who go on Yelp and Google Maps review, like shitting on uh, Vietnamese restaurants that, you know, it's not to their liking. Boohoo. But anyways, continue on. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So I've also had complaints about like the names not being like pronounceable names to the English tongue. So that kind of thing. So mm -hmm. like, but like in that sense, like I'm not writing for this this white person out there. I'm really writing for like in a sense like myself, but also like other Vietnamese American people. I feel like that's the audience like I was like aiming for. And if I could touch anyone else, whoever they might be, whatever identity they are, like that's just a bonus. But I feel like uh in the most intimate ways, I'm speaking to the Vietnamese American community out there when I wrote, wrote this book. Mm. I also would ask, I, I also want to know, uh, did, um, I just kind of lost my train of thought there for a moment. Uh, but I think like when you're not translating, I think it also says like, oh, look, I want to paint a very realistic story of the Vietnamese diaspora. And, you know, folks who are not uh, Vietnamese, especially with white people, like, look, you can Google it up, you can translate it. And I think that's very important to think of, of owning our narratives. Now, I wonder, uh, actually, now I remember what the question is, what about uh, for publishers, you know, like when you're navigating this, like, did they like suggest like well look maybe we need a translation maybe we need you to change such and such uh this is not going to go well with this audience uh, i wonder did you get any pushback not really from the publisher i felt like my editor was really great in that like she kind of saw my vision and what i wanted to write and how i wanted to write and she didn't really try to change that um so like there was never any question about the Vietnamese except like from my end, like I'm really actually bad at Vietnamese. Like I have like a first grade proficiency in Vietnamese, like some- I don't feel bad, I have a toddler. I have a toddler language on both languages, so. <laughs> and my mom yeah. usually would remind people of that too, which, you know, it's like, mom, I get that. It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, so like, I, I, like I, I hope like, if there's any bad Vietnamese in my book that doesn't make any sense and that I didn't catch, like, just, I'm sorry. Um, well, you're speaking of the diaspora. You're speaking for a lot of people who do not speak the native tongues, who can only, that they're only, like, speaking, that they're fluent in the broken tongue language. And I think it, it's hurtful. I mean, this is, this is something that I think hurts us tremendously, like, internally, because we know that we're not enough for our own communities. We're not enough being in America, not being white. So for us, it's like, it's taken us so long to 
understand the meaning of our identities, to embrace our experiences, to not feel ashamed that we may not be able to uh, master the language, master the, the cuisine. Uh, but I think it just tells us that this is a, that, that this experience is a very different set of experiences and that we shouldn't feel um, ashamed or a lack of that this is a special kind of experience that we can offer. And I think what you wrote speaks to that uh, experience. Now, I wonder what has the reaction been with uh, the Vietnamese communities uh, in general, whether it's from uh, Vietnamese elders to Vietnamese, uh, Vietnamese millennials, Gen Z folks. I'd like to get a better sense of what the reaction has been from uh, from these communities. Um, from what I've seen, like people have DM me, emailed me, um, and like the reaction from the Vietnamese community has been, I guess they, they like the story that I was trying to tell. I feel like, especially with the younger generation, um, especially with like the queer people in that generation, I, I felt like the story meant a lot to them to see like a queer Vietnamese experience um, on the page. Um, so I feel like I'm thankful for that, that I could like highlight queer Vietnamese American experience. Um, but overall, the, the reaction from the Vietnamese community has been positive. Um, a kind of like, hey, like, it's great to see our story on the page, which I, I feel like it, that, that, that means a lot to me because like, like I said, like I grew up not with a lot of Vietnamese people around me, not like a big like, community other Vietnamese American people um and like my parents didn't really talk about their past so like in a way like I almost felt like I almost like didn't have the right to write this book because mm -hmm. like I'm not a refugee I, I don't have that story within me I, I I can't even get my parents to talk about it so like part of writing this was like how how am I supposed to do this how mm. how can I how can I get this right and it's re it's really reassuring to hear from like Vietnamese people, Vietnamese American people, that like I I did it right to a certain extent, and like that just means a whole lot to me. Mm, yeah, I think that was a struggle that I used to have before, like several years ago, when I met Ocean Vong. Like I I asked him this question. I said, "How is it that you were able to tell the story of your mother?" Um, and knowing that you did not live through these experiences. And, you know, his first words were to consider asking them is uh, considered betrayal because you're asking him to relive a trauma that you did not experience. And that stood out for me. But he said something that that we t that these are also our stories, too, because we've experienced part of how we were raised that affected us. They are our stories. And um, which also I think you've answered like well I would you answered uh, my next question but I would like to see if you can elaborate a little bit more on it but like what would you tell uh, young Southeast or young or older Southeast Asian folks who are ready to write their stories and and what would be the best way of navigating through this world of publishing and pitching what would you uh, share with that because i do see that there's such a renewed and well not renewed but there's a great interest in these stories not just about the war i think we're a little fatigued from that uh but to talk about these current 
American experiences of these past 40 years that we grew up with? I think my advice would be just to write. Don't let anyone stop you um, from writing your story or whatever story you want to write. Um, like I, I said, like I, I felt like I didn't have the right to write the story, but I think that's what many writers, especially in like the Vietnamese diaspora, would feel like they, they don't have a right to write these stories. Part of it is because so long, like there's only been like the white American story of Vietnam and that has always meant the war. So it, it kind of takes a little effort, a little push from inside to get down to the page and say like, my voice is valuable, that I, that I have a right to the story, whatever I'm writing. Um, just push through that own self-doubt, but also push through any doubt from elsewhere externally. Like I've been told by a, like a white cis male writer to actually stop writing. And like, that was horrific. That was a bad experience for me, but I didn't listen to him at the end and I got a book published. So mm -hmm. it's probably it's just perseverance as far as the package of being a writer, just pushing through, um, stick to your guns in a way and just do what feels right. Um, in terms of publishing, I think a lot of that is also perseverance. Um, the road to publications always filled with a lot of rejection. Um, a lot of times that doesn't necessarily mean anything about your skills as a writer. Um, there's always so much more at work when you're signing out your novel or your collection. It's a question of, is it the right editor? Is it the right agent? Um, is it the right time? And sometimes those don't align. Mm. You just got to keep on persevering. I think perseverance is a really important trait to have as a writer because it's a road that's like full of rejection. I think someone once said like, it's like 99% of the time of writing is just flat out rejection. And that 1% is when someone accepts you and your work. And it's important to celebrate that, but also like remember that it's only 1% and a lot of the work is sitting in your seat, writing and getting rejected. Mm. Thank you for sharing uh, the realities of this work too. And also thank you for continuing to persevere because it led you to get this book published. Now, now moving forward, what is your next steps? What is your next vision as a writer? What are you looking to uh, take on? Well, I started working on a novel, I guess, and had some other ideas in my mind. Uh, I, I, like, I don't talk about them before, like, at least the first draft is done because I feel like I, I don't want to jinx it. But I feel like a lot of writers have like obsessions that they kind of return to, even though the story might morph and do very different things to very different, like totally different genres maybe. But I feel like that writer obsession, that, the, that central question is always there in any writer's work. And it's the kind of like that writer trying to unravel that question, trying to find answers that might not be there. And I feel like my own obsession, obsession is probably just history and memory. I feel like as a Vietnamese American writer, like those things are, like, I feel like 
touched my existence, this part of the diasporic existence, this idea of history and the burden of history, uh, and this idea of memory, like whose memory is memory, um, is memory correct? Like I'm thinking of generational memories of what elders might remember versus what mm -hmm. younger people might remember and how that all ties us together. So I'm not sure if I'm being coherent, but I think like history memory is mm -hmm. what I'm trying to look at, especially from the Vietnamese American standpoint and trying to unravel our shared history. Was there anything that you also learned after releasing your novel, like the kind of feedback that you're like, oh my gosh, I did not realize this happened, or this is making me want to discover or investigate more about these particular issues? Uh, did you find yourself, uh, you know, being surprised with newer information, newer discoveries that you're looking to incorporate for your next writing? I'm not sure if I discovered anything new post-publication. I, I just feel like there's more Vietnamese American and Vietnamese diasporic stories to tell. Uh, I, I feel like I've heard a lot from like other Vietnamese queer people. And like, I, I just imagine like what kind of stories they have. Um, if they're younger, I wonder like what their trajectory was and what it will be. If they're older, I feel like there's like so much to unpack there, especially like if they're older than me, I, I feel like if they're queer, they must have lived through so much more experience that I'm like not privy of, um, of the traumas even, um, and how that might lace into like the other historic traumas. Um, I mean, like not to like burden like the Vietnamese diasporic story traumas. I mean, like there's also like a lot of happy stories a lot of stories not to deal with trauma, but I feel like it's just a lot of heavy questions out there that mm -hmm. heavy stories that still need to be written, need to be told, not necessarily by me, but there's always room for more writers. Hmm. I also want to say, like, lastly, before uh, I let you go, um, are you done with your victory lap? Are you continuing the victory lap of your release of your book? And Deservedly so, you deserve a few victory laps. I think uh, you've accomplished uh, so much in releasing this book and having it in the hands of so many others. And I'm, you know, just gonna glow in in the uh, praise for you here because I, I, I'm very happy for you because I knew you before uh, the book came out and to see the the anticipation is it's such a treat to watch uh, for me and for you know other folks. Um, are you doing anything to also continue like your celebration or, or, uh, how, or other ways to promote your, to continue the promotion of your book? I don't know. I feel like the book is out there. I mean, people will find out about it. Um, I'm kind of happy to kind of stay in the background. I feel like the last couple of months the book has been released. Like there's been a lot of publicity, a lot of like, interviews, a lot of reviews, a lot of things to keep track of, especially on social media. Um, but like, I'm a very private person. Mm -hmm. And like, I kind of want to just go back into like, my writer lair and write the next book. Really. 
Mm. Uh, but I can tell that you're really enjoying, you know, the attention in a way, and and, and rightfully so. I mean, I mean, it's got to be a little exhausting too. You're like, oh my gosh, just another <laughs> Instagram tag. But uh, I, I gotta say, you know, congratulations on the success of your book. I really hope that people get a chance to pick up things we lost to the water. I hope uh, people follow the work of Diacritics that you're also um, the editor in chief for. Um, you know, pick it up. It's out now. And I want to say again, you know, I hope that uh, you continue to write uh, more of your stories and bring them to the surface. Uh, it's it's only the it's only the beginning of of more special things to come. And yeah, I got to say best of luck to you, my friend. And uh, I look forward to seeing what happens. And uh, hopefully you'll come to Chicago uh, uh, one one day for a reading. Yeah, definitely. And thank you for having me. It was great fun to talk to you. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.